Please take a seat. Good morning. My name is Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you here with us and uh, you online as well. We're glad that you can join us this morning. I'm going to start with um, a question. It's a classic kind of question, uh, perhaps usually at a dinner party where people are new or an icebreaker as part of a new group. If you could have a meal with three people from history, who would you choose? Who would you choose? And before I started trying to impress people uh, with impressive people, I would say sports stars like uh, Steven Gerrard or um, film stars, you know, like Mr. Miyagi, remember him? Um, You can go down several routes, of course, can't you? You can combine um, all of these. A late family member who you miss, perhaps. An intellectual powerhouse that you'd want to grill. Someone you'd want to um, jam with and spend the evening chatting the night away. Well, let me turn that question around this morning. If you had to exclude a group of people from your table, who would it be? Who would not be invited to this um, dinner party of of yours? Who would be the first to be thrown out? If you had a big party and lots of people were there, who would be first to be thrown out? Don't often get asked this at church, I realize, so uh, bear with me. Who are the lowest of the low in your eyes? Who makes your blood boil? Well, hoping that um, you're not too kind of traumatized and feeling that in your body too much, take some deep breaths and let me pray for you. And let me pray for us as we come to this passage uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are good, that your love endures forever, that you speak, that you don't leave us in the dark guessing what you're like, but you reveal yourself to us in the person of Jesus. And when we look to him, we see something uh, beyond um, what we would imagine. So help us to see more of that uh, this morning, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, um, take the words I say and the things that are, are, are not of you, just to let them fall to the side. But those that are of you, would you um, help them to sink deep into our hearts, that we might be changed and leave as different people because of the time that we spent uh, together this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll notice that uh, we're starting back in Luke. We've not been there for about three months. Uh, We took about six months to get five chapters through, and we're starting that again. We've had a little break, and we're back. And we've been encouraging people to write um, the Gospel of Luke Um, in a notebook or a journal or on your iPad, however you want to do that, just to kind of tangibly do that and to kind of journey along uh, with this gospel account of of Jesus, this good news account of Jesus. So let me just um, go back with a little review for a moment. In the first few chapters, after the miraculous circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, we realize something special is going on. Long promised and long long awaited, his arrival Um, is prepared for by his cousin, John the Baptist, who prepares the way. He says to everyone who who will listen, salvation is here, the Savior is coming. And Jesus comes on the scene, and little by little, story by story, um, incident by incident, we see the kind of Savior that Jesus is. We see the kind of person Jesus is. So the end of chapter 4, Jesus is casting out demons out of people and healing people. The beginning of chapter 5, um, he calls uh, Peter, he heals a man with leprosy, um, a contagious skin disease, uh, right before our passage. He heals a paralyzed man whose friends managed to, to, to get him to Jesus by lowering him into the house from 
um, the, the roof of a house. You'll remember that story perhaps from childhood and uh, now that maybe you're older, you realize, oh, that was probably quite costly, wasn't it, that? And um, breaking a big hole into someone's roof just to get them to Jesus. But that was how much they wanted to get to this magnetic character. Jesus forgives this person's sin and tells him, rise, take up your mat and go home. And in that last incident, we see the religious leaders of the day taking notice, questioning the authority and audacity of this seemingly new young upstart who has come from nowhere and is trying to teach and has the audacity to forgive sin. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And so we come to our passage today, Luke 5, 27 to 32. If you've got it in front of you on your phone or in a Bible, please do have that in front of you. We'll be looking at it. And we see here as Jesus comes to this tax collector, we wonder how is he going to treat him? He's healed demon-possessed people, lepers, paralytics. These were kind of slightly outside of their control, right? This tax collector? How is Jesus going to react to him? So verse 27, let me go through our passage briefly and then we'll circle back and look at things in a little bit more depth. Let's look at verse 27 here. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Jesus sees the tax collector and a social outcast of the day, probably sitting on his own. That's what people do when they're cast out. Or with a Roman guard perhaps next to him to protect him since he was despised, literally loathed by everybody. They were outcasts because they were lowest of the low. They were Jews who had sold out to the Romans by collecting their taxes for them, doing their dirty work for them. And they sold out their own people to the Romans to get quick, to get rich quick by taking a cut above the tax rate to, to kind of line their own pockets. They were extortioners. So while Rome could charge, say, 50% on your new fishing business, Levi could, could charge you 60%, 65%, 70%, all while standing behind these Romans um, who would protect him. So you could be cheated, but you could do nothing about it because he was standing behind Rome, and Rome had plenty of big men with spears and, and weapons. They were cowards. They were betrayers. They were extortioners. These were excluded from the dinner party, every party. They were social lepers, outcast and hated. And so you might get a sense from this of how scandal it was, scandalous it was at what happened next. Then the verse 27, it says, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. In our social media age, people will do anything for, for followers, right? But Jesus, come on, this is terrible public relations. This is terrible PR. Jesus sees him. He's not, he's at work. He's not even in his casual clothes. He's dressed up in his tax collector uniform, whatever that was at the time, maybe a big suit, big tie with a knot or here, big black briefcase at his table, mounds of car, cash and coins. Jesus said to him there and then, in the middle of his work day, in his traitorous, despicable work day, follow me. And he does. But it gets worse. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And we see that Levi throws this big party for Jesus. He throws this big party for Jesus, and other people are there, but because no one really wants to be with Levi, they end up being other tax collectors. 
Parties are for celebration. Levi is overflowing with delight at Jesus calling him. But parties are loud, and they didn't have double-glazed windows then or big perimeters around their houses. And so people could see what was going on. People could see what's Jesus doing with those, those people, those people, those down-and-outs, those outcasts. The Pharisees are looking in. Uh, they are the religious police of the day. They saw it as their job to enforce God's law multiplied by 613, because only that way could God finally redeem his people. Maybe if they became more pure, to add to the laws that, that they had been given, if they extended the temple to their homes and their tables, maybe then they could be pure and God would then come and save them and redeem them and uh, restore them like he said he would. And this is why the Pharisees say this. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They grumble. The same word used in the Greek Old Testament for the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. They grumble, they murmur, they complain. Why, oh why, what is he playing at? Doesn't he know? Notice how Luke calls the party goers tax collectors and others. You see that? But the Pharisees call them tax collectors and sinners. Since by nature of working with Romans who are Gentiles, they were unclean. And so they grouped them together as one entity in this place, tax collectors and sinners. Can you imagine your profession um, being so despised that it's put together in one phrase like this? Lawyers and sinners. Policemen and sinners. Teachers and sinners. Parking attendant people who wait at your car for the time to run out and give you a fine and sinners. <laughs> That's how low they were. <laughs> they, they use a singular for tax collector and sinners. And Jesus answered them, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Likely he is using the designations that the Pharisees are using in order to speak to them. Jesus is not saying that they are healthy and righteous or those that he is with are sick and sinners. Rather, he is using their terms in order to speak their language. So I think he's saying to them, those who think they are well have no need of a doctor, but those who know they are sick. I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who realize they are sinners to repentance. Isn't that an incredible statement? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's the doctor who comes not for the healthy, but for the sick. And that's why he comes. Not for the righteous, people think they're righteous, but for sinners and to call them to repentance. The Pharisees expect Jesus to behave like a doctor who doesn't see sick people. That wouldn't be a very good doctor. I've got some friends who had a doctor who wouldn't see their son this week because they were scared that the, the, the COVID test might be a false negative, so he wouldn't go and see, take um, my friend's uh, son at an appointment. That's not a very good doctor, right? Jesus is saying he wants to be a doctor who saves. He wants to be a doctor who comes and is with sick people. He can't avoid sick people. Jesus, a saviour, can't do what he came to do unless he's with sinful people. And so it's upside down from what the Pharisees had known, what the people of the day would have guessed, but Jesus had come to be a bringer of a new upside-down kind of kingdom. So that's a brief overview of, of the passage that we've read. Um, and in the rest of our time, I just want us to focus on, on two main things here. I want to use what Jesus says to Levi to frame um, what I say and, and what I would love for you to hear. Jesus says to Levi two things. Follow me. Follow me. 
So firstly, follow. For Levi, it was quite simple and it was quite practical, actually. When he heard Jesus say, follow me, we are told that leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. For Levi, leaving everything was quite significant. Whereas for Peter, it was uh, kind of leaving some smelly fish, fishing nets and a, a fish boat to follow Jesus. Actually, he probably had lots of money that he was leaving behind to follow Jesus. He had lots of wealth in worldly terms. If he was able to cut the taxes, um, add taxes to the Roman tax. But something new had grabbed him. He was willing to let it go. Something else had gripped him and he was moving forward. So he rose. We are told that he rose up. Notice, and I want to just draw to our attention, that the paralyzed man in the previous passage did so too. There's a parallel here. The paralyzed man, after being healed and forgiven by Jesus, does this. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They're both called by Jesus and at his healing words they rise. You see why we um, stand uh, during our confession for those words of, of absolution and, uh, and an assurance. There's something about rising or realizing that we have been lifted up, that we can rise and uh, choose to do that because he has lifted us up. One is healed of his physical suffering and isolation, and the other is healed of his social suffering and isolation. But both act, both react, both respond to Jesus' initiative. They are called and they rise with purpose. And so Levi, leaving everything, rises up and follows Jesus. The sense of following here is um, not of following a team or a celebrity on Twitter or a story. Is literally to come after, to accompany, to go along with, to keep company with, and to do that with a person, to follow after, to walk behind, to walk alongside. So friends, being a Christian is, is to follow Jesus. I think we overcomplicate it quite a lot. wonder if you do, oftentimes. But it's to follow Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him, to be with Jesus, learning to be more like him, to learn day by day from Jesus how to live my life as he would live my life if he were in my place. Very practical. How would Jesus live at home looking after the kids? How would Jesus live your life as one of our teachers who have kind of begun back at school this week? How would Jesus live as a, as a flight attendant, as Jyoti is and will be as she heads back to Air Canada after doing our ministry coordinator job so well for a few months? How would he live your life if he were you? Not just how would Jesus live in the critical tough moments of life, you know, like when someone throws up and misses the sick bag in aisle D of flight AC4593 and you have to clear it up because you're doing your job. Or when someone starts a fight because of legroom and you're like, oh no, what am I supposed to do here? But rather, how would Jesus live life as a flight attendant traveling in different time zones, having disrupted sleep, having lots of downtime in airports, having less than 24 hours in exotic places, working as part of a team that, that are working in a metal tube that seems to miraculously fly through the sky? How would he do that? Those are the questions that we need to, to ask. How would he do your job? How would he live your life? We can't expect to know how Jesus would act um, in critical moments without living with Jesus and as Jesus would in the normal moments. 
That's where the WWJD, remember what would Jesus do thing, is, is kind of ripe, only half gets it. Um, it's not just what would Jesus do like in this critical moments, but actually how would he live and how is my life shaped by how he would live now? Because only then does something flow naturally that isn't like, oh, I need to look at my bracelet to see what I must do, but actually flows out of it and does something in us. Dallas Willard puts this well. If I am Jesus' disciple, that means I am with him to learn from him how to be like him. As a follower of Jesus, I am with him by choice and grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God, learning from Jesus how to lead my life, my whole life, my real life, today as you. But we don't instinctively do this, right? We don't instinctively leave everything. We don't accidentally rise up. We don't drift into following. We do this by choice, by grace. But we have to have this intention. Jesus says, follow me. What would it look like for you to leave everything, to rise up, to follow him? It's practical. What would it practically look like for you? What would it look like for you to follow Jesus? What would you ask him to show you? So that's follow. Now me. Jesus says to leave, I follow me. Let's focus on the me now. What kind of person did Jesus uh, did Levi follow? What about this Jesus made Levi want to put on a great feast to go from being more tight potentially than a Chinese Scottish person is with his money and um, throw a great banquet for, for anybody and everybody to party? What is this Jesus really like to follow? Jesus turns things upside down. He is utterly countercultural, and his invitation is utterly radical. He calls Levi to follow him, and when Levi does, Jesus is anything but standoffish. There's no fear of commitment or of um, him wanting to kind of uh, leave him once he's made his friend. When he feels popular now, he's going to leave. No, Jesus um, is there. He goes from forgiving sinners to openly associating with them. He reclines at the table with them. The tax collectors and others were eating with them, reclining at the table, and it makes the Pharisees grumble. So let me give a bit of background here um, about why it was so significant for the Pharisees that um, Jesus would associate with tax collectors and sinners. And, and um, this might be a little heavy, so stay with me, because um, it helps me to make a significant point um, shortly afterwards, okay? So hang in there with me for a moment. In a famous essay called Deciphering a Meal, Anthropologist Mary Douglas shows that in cultures throughout history, meals represented boundary markers. Boundary markers, things that, that put a boundary between you and other people. Meals were boundaries that reflected levels of intimacy and acceptance. I would eat with family and those I loved and trusted, but I wouldn't eat with enemies. That wouldn't be safe, that wouldn't make sense, right? I also wouldn't eat with those who would contaminate me and make me um, unclean. You see, Jewish food laws didn't only symbolize cultural boundaries, they also kind of created them. Um, kosher food and its requirements, you need to have different utensils to touch different foods, you need to deal with the blood in a certain way. These were dietary boundaries that created relational boundaries. It made it hard to eat with those who you wouldn't be sure were keeping these boundaries. You would maybe invite me to your house, but I'd be like, oh, I'm not sure if I can make it because uh, maybe you don't use those utensils like we're supposed to. Or, or drain the blood from the animal like we're supposed to. So it's going to have to be another day. And in typical Vancouver style, it would never happen. Right? 
In first century Judaism, there were even more laws about eating and therefore even more marked boundaries. As I said earlier, Pharisees in that day saw their tables at home as extensions of the, the temple in Jerusalem. And so everything had to be perfect and ritually clean because Israel, well, it had to be pure before it could be restored. And so this is why the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why? When they make you unclean, when they could contaminate us, when you could mess this whole restoration thing up for us. Craig Bloomberg describes it like this. He's a scholar, a kind of New Testament scholar. Even more so than the Old Testament, Judaism at this time viewed mealtimes as important occasions for drawing boundaries. Dining created an intimate setting in which one nurtured friendship with the right kind of people, eating the right kind of food. There was a notion that unclean people and objects constantly threatened to corrupt God's holy elect nation and individuals within it. Like the literal physical disease, we may think of ritual impurity as contagious. But Jesus comes, and this is what's interesting, you can come back to with me. Jesus interacts with uncleanness and impurity in a completely different way. At the beginning of chapter 5, Peter, when he realizes Jesus' power and sees him um, perform a miracle, he says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. I, I, I'm unclean, stay away from me, keep the holy separate from the unholy, keep the clean as far away from the unclean as possible. He says, I'm sinful, get away from me, get out of the vicinity, you'll get ostracized, you'll ostracize yourself, you'll get removed from the community, you'll feel like an outcast if you don't get away from me, that's what he feels. That's why Simon Peter says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Does Jesus go away or run off? No, Jesus says, follow me. Come closer. Next in Luke 5, there's a leper who comes to Jesus. Bear in mind that uh, lepers is a skin disease, um, degenerative in some instances. Some of them had to wear bells, right? So that when they walked into the vicinity, people would be able to hear them and move away and get away. That's proper social distancing, friends, right? The leper, covered in leprosy, begs Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you're willing, you can make me clean. I've been ostracized. I've been cast out. I'm a social outcast. What does Jesus do? He doesn't run off. He doesn't stay away. He doesn't put on some rubber gloves a mask, douse himself with antibacterial lotion. What does he do? He reaches out his hand and he touches him. I am willing. Be clean. In eating with Levi and the tax collectors, Jesus offers something different. He's turning that kind of contagious unholiness around and he's beginning to do something different. He offers friendship and full acceptance to the social outcast. The outcast is cast out because they're unclean, because they might contaminate. Pharisees wouldn't be seen dead eating with, without the right rituals, never mind with a traitor associated with the Gentiles. But Jesus is right in there. He eats with them, he drinks with them, he relaxes with, after the meal with them. Craig Bloomberg, that same scholar, calls what Jesus is doing here as contagious holiness. Whereas before it was contagious unholiness, stay away from me. Actually, what Jesus is doing as, as he meets with people, as he's touching people, as he's eating with people, 
as he's bringing his holiness. I'm conscious, as I say the word contagious, um, we're pretty scared and overly aware of bad contagiousness right now, okay? So I, I recognize that, holding my hands up. And um, anyway, I've gone for it, right? We, it's good to be aware of what's going on, and I think we're more aware of what it means to be contagious than we ever did. We're talking about aerosols and particles and all these sort of things. I never knew that in the past. Now we know that all the more. But what if there was a good contagiousness shown here by Jesus? Contagious holiness. It's a turning around of much of Israel's history, of staying away from, from foreigners and others um, because they were get their uncleanness, but Jesus is bringing his contagious holiness. He touches lepers, and he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, and he doesn't become unholy or unclean. In fact, his holiness, his grace, was more contagious than anything that could contaminate. The purity laws, the food laws were being fulfilled in Jesus as he eats with these unclean people, and he hangs out with the bottom rungs of society. His presence changes people his goodness and his holiness were contagious. No matter how unclean or unworthy or cast aside those people felt, him coming near brought his holiness and offered them a welcome that they had never seen before. I wonder if for some of us here this morning, leaving everything behind is, is not actually primarily sparkly, shiny things that glitter, right? Like, money or success or accomplishment or, or getting all the, what people think of as the good life. I wonder if for some of us here, the call to leave things behind are those parts of our lives or identity or history that, that we believe that others won't accept about us. That we believe that Jesus won't accept about us. We're not able to leave that behind. That he won't accept it because we can't accept it. That he won't forgive it because we can't forgive it. And that makes us feel unclean, untouchable. Pain of past abuse, shame of, of past regrets. Reminders of, of failures in relationships, in life. What if we're being called to, to leave that behind, to rise and to follow him? God sees us and he still wants us. He wants it all. He knows it all. He knew it all about Levi. He still says, follow me. Leave it behind. Rise up and follow me. His heart is to draw near, friends. To draw you near. To have his life change yours. To have that contagious holiness change you little by little. His heart is to draw near. Dane Ortland quoting uh, Romans 5.20 where it says, when sin increased, grace um, increased all the more, abounded all the more. He says this, the guilt and shame of those in Christ is ever outstripped by his abounding grace. When we feel as if our thoughts, words, and deeds are diminishing God's grace towards us, those sins and failures are in fact causing it to surge forward all the more. What if that were true? What do you not believe that God accepts about you? What if that part of you draws his heart all the more to you in grace? What if the part that you think most repulses God is actually the part of you that he wants to heal today? 
What if he wants to invite you to draw near so that his contagious holiness can soothe, transform, and renew the part of you that you've always sought to hide? He says, follow me. Let me come close. Leave it behind. Rise up and follow me. And so Jesus, eating and drinking, having meals with sinners, was a picture of this powerful and contagious holiness. He could do it because he was the one who was ultimately going to be cast out, right? He was the only one going to be put out into the darkness, who was going to be excluded on the cross. Like the scapegoat, um, the goats that were sent out into the wilderness uh, to die, to represent the sin of the people. Jesus was to be that. He was to be cast out so that we could be brought in, so we could be sure that we brought in, so we could be sure that we were accepted and welcomed by him, that he was able to do that. That's what enables him to bring that holiness, that contagious holiness into our lives. Jesus eats with sinners. He seems to do it a lot, like he's either going to a meal or having a meal or going from a meal, right? He's the sort of guy that I like. He's my sort of man. He would be at home in Vancouver for sure. He eats with sinners. Now imagine your favorite casual restaurant, the last one you've been to. It might have been a while. You're stood at the window looking in, but you've forgotten your wallet and your purse. You notice there that person, that group, who you think are the lowest of the low. You wouldn't be seen dead with who you think are the worst, who you would first kick out of your dinner party. You're about to spit on the ground or kind of slightly throw up in your throat. And then you see Jesus walk in from the washroom and sit down right next to them. He embraces them. He welcomes them. He is changing them. I wonder how does that feel? I wonder if that jars. It does to me. What are the barriers and judgments and fears that prevent you from going into that restaurant to eat with Jesus? Jesus answers, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so as we kind of reflect on um, those people who we struggle with, that we struggle to be with, let me read this quote from Brené Brown. He's a researcher on shame. This has been speaking to me a little bit recently. Self-righteousness is dangerous. Most of us buy into the myth that it's a long fall from I'm better than you to I'm not good enough. But the truth is that there are two sides of the same coin. Self-righteousness is just the armor of self-loathing. When I judge and I see people and I look down upon them, I'm using my judgment, my lens of judgment that I use on them, that I think I'm just using on them, but I'm using on myself. The judgment, there's punishment for the other or, or myself. There's always that kind of condemnation. I found that my own voices of condemnation um, have been more alive and more, more real to me in recent days, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm convicted. Those who think they are well have no need of a doctor, but those who know they are sick. I have not come to call those who think they are the righteous, but those who realize they are sinners to repentance. And so, brothers and sisters, friends, um, all you need is need today to say I need you, to realize that you need this doctor who comes and who saves, to say to him, I need you, I need you to help me see the places where I'm not well, where I'm sick. 
I need you to show me where I feel I'm righteous when actually I'm tainted by sin. I need to leave everything to rise up and turn to Jesus. This is repentance. This is what he is calling all of us to, turning from sin to Christ in need and ultimately in adoration, in faith that he is not put off by my brokenness or yours, your shame or mine, that he wants to draw us to him. And as we draw near, his cha he changes us with contagious holiness. His holiness given to us that we might live for him and delight with him. Levi's welcome by Jesus changes his heart. He's healed. He puts on a great feast for Jesus, but loads of other people turn up. The party is contagious. People find that they are welcome. I wonder what it would look like for us to live such lives of, of welcome in our community, in our city, of being welcomed by Jesus to such an extent that we are willing to welcome those um, in a culture where people like to judge and condemn and uh, stay away from people that they disagree with, what it would look like for us to, to be with people, uh, to love people, to share meals with people, and to, to provide that hospitality for others. So let's turn to him, finding that there is delight and welcome, that he has been turned towards us all along. There is acceptance and belonging. Jesus says, come follow me. Let's hear that call today. So let's have a moment of, of quiet. And then Preston's going to come up and um, lead us um, to the table. The table that he invites us to, that he has prepared. That he says, I want to eat with you. Wherever you're at, leave it all behind. All that you're ashamed of. All that you want to hide. Leave it behind. Rise up. Follow me.